welcome to This Week in Video Games, episode 38. My name's Tom Kershaw, and this is a podcast all about the world of video games. So this week, I've been playing Pokemon Shield, Astrologaster, and Bubble Bobble for Friends. I've also been looking into how video games deliver sequels in a live service world, and I was also lucky enough to sit down with Jennifer Schneiderwright from Niam Niam and talk about Astrologaster, amongst other things. So it's a jam-packed show. Let's get to it. Welcome to the show everyone, I hope you're well and you're having a good week. I'm good this week, having spent most of the weekend visiting my folks back at home and just rolling back into London town. So the big release of the year are now out and the last few weeks have been super, super busy. So we've had The Outer Worlds, Death Stranding, Luigi's Mansion 3, Pokemon Sword and Shield and uh, Shenmue 3, if you like that sort of thing. So they've all been released and uh, now it's time to start thinking about 2019 in the grand scheme of gaming. What has the year been like for you? And uh, I'm definitely going to go over this in more detail and probably bring you a game of the year list uh, towards the end of the year. But let me know what you think. Uh, if you do want to get in touch then sign up to patreon.com forward slash this week in video games. By signing up to any tier you can send in your questions, your comments, your video game stories and send them in. Also, you're going to get early access to the podcast, exclusive content, you can vote on community playthroughs, and also get shout-outs on the podcast. So I'd love to focus more on creating great video game content for you, and by signing up to Patreon, you'd really help me in doing that, so please consider signing up today. Some of the exclusive content you'll find on Patreon includes the extra bits with industry experts that I interview. So this week I sat down with Jennifer Snyderwright from Niam Niam to talk about Astrologaster and you'll find the full interview there on Patreon and that also includes extra bits with uh, when I sat down with John Ingold from Inkle Studios with Emily Grace Buck and also Sam Partridge as well from the team who brought us over the Alps. So hopefully you'll find the extra bits fun and we often go into detail about what they like to play in their spare time, more about how they got into the industry and much much more so do check out that on patreon.com forward slash this week in video games. Right, that is enough waffle from me, so let's get into what I've been playing this week. So it's been a good few weeks of gaming and I've spent a lot of my time this week with Pokemon Shield, although I haven't made it to the Pokemon Centre here in London. And I guess I'm going to have to wait now as I think it's gone until sometime in 2020. The queues for that place have been absolutely crazy. But I'll get into my review of Pokemon Shield very, very soon. Also this week I jumped back into Destiny where we had the Undying Mind placed into the Destiny universe or back into the Destiny universe with a groan from the community. The season of Undying is closing up in Destiny 2 and we've had some fun things but this final event called out on the roadmap was a little bit disappointing so it will be interesting to see what we have coming up in the season of Dawn coming probably on December the 10th 2019 and we'll hopefully hear a little bit more from Bungie uh, hopefully this week. So as part of playing Destiny 2 this week, what with the announcement of Overwatch 2 in recent weeks, I've been thinking about sequels in live service games. So I'll lay out my thoughts on that later on in the episode. Bubble Bobble for Friends was also released this week and that was a fun franchise to jump back into. I remember Bubble Bobble from my childhood and uh, it's great to have Bub and Bob back on Nintendo Switch and to take with me wherever I go. 
Finally this week I've been playing Astrologaster, which is an Elizabethan comedy game where you use astrology to diagnose patients who come to see you with their issues. It's a super fun game and it's been light relief amongst games with a crushing amount of capitalism and uh, walking around in post-apocalyptic worlds delivering packages. So I was lucky enough to sit down with Jennifer Schneiderwright from Niam Niam and we got into Astrologaster and also Jennifer's experience in the games industry today. And that's coming up later on in the show. But first of all, let's get into Pokemon Sword and Shield. A breathtaking land. Fierce competition. New friendships. What will you discover in your new adventure in the Galar region? In the Galar region, you can find a scenic countryside, modern cities, and majestic landscapes with grassy fields and snowy mountains. Your journey to becoming a champion starts with choosing your partner Pokemon. You'll meet newly discovered Pokemon throughout your adventure. Yamper generates electricity as it runs around chasing people and Pokemon. If Cramorant gets its hands mouth on a catch, watch out for a counterattack. Despite being made of durable metal, Duraludon's body is surprisingly light. So many of us have been dreaming about this day for many a year. Pokemon is all grown up, and it's time to explore the vast world on a console rather than a handheld device. So Pokemon Sword and Shield is here for Nintendo Switch, but is this the Pokemon we've always wanted? Let's find out. So Pokemon Sword and Shield is the first original outing on Nintendo Switch for the Pokemon franchise following on from Let's Go Pikachu and Eevee from 2018. So Game Freak have been biding their time and sent fans into delirium earlier in the year when the game was announced. And uh, they managed to keep most of the details of the game fairly close to their chest and not without a little bit of controversy, but more on that later. So those of you familiar with the Pokemon franchise won't need explaining what Pokemon Sword and Shield is. You play a young Pokemon trainer starting out on a journey to become a champion, starting off in a small town, and as the game proceeds you collect more and more Pokemon, and as you go, you make them stronger as you level up. So you pick a start of Pokemon at the beginning of the game and level them up through a series of gym battles. So it's your job to work your way through the world and defeat gym leaders along the way and collect their badges ultimately taking down the champion and realising your dream of becoming champion yourself. So the story is tried and tested and Game Freak don't really stray too far off a model that has worked. In Pokemon Sword and Shield we're exploring the Galar region, which is supposed to be a lot like England. So there's rolling hills, dodgy English slang and a Pokemon made out of tea. So being English, I really liked it. The, uh, the Galar region has recognisable landmarks, You've got like a Stonehenge kind of area, and you've got the kind of quaint little villages and rolling green hills. The uh, British versions of the Pokemon, they're kind of cool as well. Uh, the only thing that annoyed me a little was Team Yell, and they're the punks of the Galar region. They're, they're kind of um, really, really annoying. 
<laughs> I really like Generation 8 of uh, Pokemon as well. Uh, we've got Wooloo, he's a sheep. Zigzagoon, he looks like a badger. And Yampa, he's this new electric type, which kind of looks like a corgi. You've got Gossifleur, he's kind of a cute little flower Pokemon, and so on. I really, really like them. Uh, we've got the classic water, fire, and grass starters with uh, Sobble, Scorbunny, and Grookey. Uh, normally, I go for the water types when I start a Pokemon game, although this time I thought I'd change it up and I went with Fire with uh, Scorbunny. Uh, the evolutions had been leaked before the game's release, but I managed to miss those and uh, I focused on evolving them myself. So, as well as the new generation, we've got the classics in there too, like Pikachu, Eevee and Meowth, which are all early catches in the game. So when people think about Pokemon on console, I think uh, their mind goes into a meld between old school Pokemon and something like Breath of the Wild. So we want this kind of open wide space where we can see Pokemon everywhere, yeah, everywhere we look and everywhere we go. Uh, we haven't quite got that here though. It feels like an iteration on Pokemon Let's Go rather than the big game changer and perhaps the big step forward for the franchise that we that we may have wanted. I really enjoyed Pokemon Shield, uh, but it feels like Game Freak didn't quite turn the volume up to 11 like they perhaps wanted to. Uh, they played it safe and they stuck to the formula that they know. One of the main innovations in the game is the wild area, and uh, this is a big expansive area that you can walk around um, and you can pick and choose the Pokemon to battle. This is what we kind of wanted everywhere. So your character running around a 3D space, um, importantly being able to control the camera as well in that 3D space, running into Pokemon and battling. There's good things and there's bad things here. So it's great to run around the wild area and fight random Pokemon. It's great to actually see the Pokemon as well as get into random battles in the tall grass. But it's not so great that this gameplay is restricted to this area and the rest of the game is very much kind of on rails. Also, you can't always catch the Pokemon when you're under leveled. It doesn't even give you the option to do so. So together with the wild area, you've got Max Ray Battles. They've been added to the game where you and up to three players can take on Pokemon. The online features open up in the game after you meet Professor Magnolia fairly early on. And once this happens, you can connect to other players and team up for Max Raid Battles. This is where you take turns and take it down a large Pokemon. It's also pretty cool going online and seeing other players running around in the same instance as you. So cooking has been added to the game in the form of curries and we here in England do have some delicious curries on offer. So you'll first learn this skill in the wild area very early on in the game and hanging out with your Pokemon and cooking curry together helps you bond as well as fill you up. So the cooking mini game isn't quite as fun as cooking in Breath of the Wild but it can be entertaining and it is a little unique twist on the cooking minigame. The animations and the amount of time spent cooking took a little too long for my liking and did become a little bit repetitive. So new in the game is the Dynamax phenomenon and this is the ability to make your Pokemon super large, uh, making the once cute little guys, making them look much more menacing. Professor Magnolia, your resident professor of Pokemon lore in the game, um, has been looking into the Dynamaxing phenomenon throughout her career and taught many trainers how to harness this power. Uh, there's also Gigantamaxing Pokemon, which is similar, where you get to make your Pokemon large and they may also change form as well. So it's a nice new feature in the game, which makes battles feel grand in scale and impact. It's also funny to Dynamax a Pokemon and then watch as a tiny little Pokemon tries feebly to attack you and you can crush them in a single blow. 
So Pokemon Sword and Shield wasn't without controversy in its build-up to launch with an announcement earlier in the year saying for the first time that not all Pokemon would be in the game. For the first time ever, you wouldn't be able to catch them all, and uh, then just days before launch there was anger from fans saying Game Freak had reused character models uh, in the game, and uh, the game launched to a bunch of players saying they were going to actually boycott the game. However, since the game's come out, the complaints have died down, and it seems actually these players actually quite enjoyed the game, rather than kind of sitting back and complaining. So there's plenty to enjoy about the game. It's classic Pokemon, uh, collecting your best team of Pokemon and building up their skills and evolutions and working your way through a series of gyms to collect the badges. The gameplay is fun and keeps you wanting to come back for more. And uh, The Galar region is awesome and the new generation of Pokemon, they're vibrant and they're really likeable as well. I don't think it's the perfect Pokemon game we would have wanted. It feels like an evolution on the right path to what we do want but perhaps in one or two maybe more iterations of the game. So Pokemon, Sword and Shield, it's really easy, whereas I remember running around in red and blue all those years ago getting a proper beatdown from opponents. Uh, it's not quite lived up to the open world expectations of fans either. It's definitely a step forward in the right direction and a, and a good game in its own right. I don't think it's quite there in terms of the ideal Pokemon game that we wanted. Game Freak will no doubt learn from this release in terms of missing Pokemon and building on the wild area, and hopefully they'll expand that out uh, to the rest of the game. In summary, I enjoyed my time with Pokemon Sword and Shield, and it's great to see a full-blown Pokemon game on Nintendo Switch, and I enjoy nothing more than building up my team while I'm on a commute or on the sofa. It's not the perfect game by all means, and it does leave room to build on, or this idea, for the next iteration. If you enjoy Pokemon games, then no doubt you're going to love this. And it's also a great place to jump in if you've taken a break from the series. There's definitely room for improvement for sure, but it's a fun time to be had for gamers for all ages and definitely one of the biggest releases of 2019 so far. So it was released by Game Freak, it's an exclusive for Nintendo Switch, and it was originally released on the 15th of November 2019. But what did you think of the game? Head on over to patreon.com forward slash thisweekinvideogames, sign up to any tier and send in your questions, your feedback, and let me know what you thought about Pokemon Sword and Shield. I would love to hear from you. Well that's it for Pokemon Sword and Shield. Next up, let's take a look at the Vex Offensive Final Assault in Destiny 2. So the season of Undying is coming to an end in a few days and the Vex Offensive Final Assault has been dropped into Destiny 2 Shadowkeep. So over the past few weeks, Ikora has been busy building a portal in the tower. And each week when we logged in, more of the portal would be built and the theories have grown in the Destiny community as to what was going to happen. So the Vex Offensive Final Assault has been specifically called out in the Season of Undying roadmap, leading to expectations that something is going to happen. Would we go through a portal and enter a new strike or a mission? Would we get some event-specific loot to celebrate the end of the season? In the end, the only change was the boss fight in the Vex Offensive, and rather than fight the Vex Minotaur, we fight against the Undying Mind. From a story perspective, it's quite cool. The Undying Mind is a Vex Hydra boss in the strike The Undying Mind from Destiny 1. The Undying Mind has re-established itself in the Vex network and created copies of itself over thousands of timelines. The Mind was unreachable until Ikora constructed a Vex portal from the Vex chassis components allowing Guardians to venture into the timelines where the Mind had established itself and destroy it once again. 
From a gameplay perspective, it's a little disappointing as it would have been nice to get a new strike or a new weapon or maybe a more complex encounter to the end of the final assault. I would have liked a little something more to end the season and back in September 2019 we had a community event where we had to kill a certain number of enemies on Mars including 300 million hive, 150,000 Nocris kills and 100,000 Zol kills. And this was good because the community had worked together and met a goal rather than being directed to kill thousands of undying mines over thousands of timelines. Perhaps this isn't the end of the season and we still have some content coming. Uh, before the end of the season to link up to the next season we will see in the next few weeks. Back in the summer Luke Smith did say in his director's cut articles that the annual pass was harder on the team than we anticipated, the scope of what we delivered and the pace of what we delivered it and the overall throughput for the annual pass takes a toll on the Bungie team. I and many others had conversations throughout the year with team members saying they jumped in uh, from release to release and the grind of working on Destiny was pretty tough. So working on the game was starting to wear people down and we needed a more systematic standardised set of mechanics for progression to keep our teams healthier, which is an absolutely fair assessment to make. We want Bungie to be healthy and we want their employees to be healthy and not ground down and uh, fatigued by working on Destiny. This does raise the question though, do we expect too much from Bungie in terms of what they can realistically release in a small window of time? Were our expectations raised by a specific callout on the roadmap? And is this the first chapter in Bungie's single evolving world? And, um, you know, is it going to continue into next season? Uh, really, really interesting stuff. So Bungie has since responded to the community, asking for their feedback with Cosmo Take to Reddit saying, sorry, you found it disappointing, and we'll pass along everyone's feedback to the team. Let us know what you liked, what you didn't like, and what you think could be improved in the future. So jump on over to Reddit and uh, post in a comment there if you want to let Cosmo and the Bungie team what you think about the season of Undying, and uh, yeah, let them know. One good thing about the uh, three-month seasons is Bungie can learn from these content updates really, really quickly. So it's up to Bungie what they learn from this end-of-season event. However, it appears expectations were raised somehow, uh, perhaps by that call-out on the roadmap, and hopefully they'll learn from this in future content releases. Uh, but what did you think of the Season of Dying and specifically the Vex Offensive Final Assault? Um, go over to patreon.com forward slash this week in video games sign up to any tier and let me know your feedback on that i would love to hear from you but talking about destiny 2 and uh, with the uh, recent uh, announcement that overwatch 2 is coming out it's really interesting to see how these live service games deal with sequels so next up i'm going to take a look at live service sequels and how video games deliver these sequels in a live service world the games industry has relied on numbered sequels for years uh, but the tides and the business models are changing with the emergence of live service games. Here I'm going to look at the value of uh, sequels as well as the alternatives and some examples in the gaming world. So for years we've lived in a world of video game sequels where the original game would come out and then be followed up by a number of successful sequels. Super Mario Bros. is a really good example of a video game series that had numbered sequels uh, with varying success. So the original came out and sold 40 million copies and was followed up with Super Mario Bros. 2, which sold about 7.4 million copies. Super Mario Bros. 3, and that was about 17.2 million copies. And Super Mario World, that was 20.6 million copies, and that was on the SNES. 
Other examples include Borderlands, uh, God of War and the Final Fantasy series. So video games have evolved from a single release product to constantly evolving. Live service products shape through audience feedback and seasonal updates. Video games are still a place to enjoy a great single player experience, but they're also turning into social experiences as well. So there's somewhere where you can hang out with your friends and go to a concert, as 11 million people did went to Marshmallow's concert in the uh, in-game concert in Fortnite. As games have evolved from and continue to evolve into live service products, the method of tackling sequels is an interesting topic. Some have done a great job and some have done uh, an okay job. You know, there are companies in the business of live service games that have refused to create a sequel, perhaps nervous of upsetting the apple cart and disrupting the financially rewarding flow of transactions coming into the business. There's plenty of benefits to the developer and publisher for numbered sequels. It's a good opportunity to promote the game from a marketing and sales point of view. With the marketing comes a chance to shout out about your game and perhaps pair that with a new console to further amplify that hype. Sequels also provide the developer an opportunity to show off new features, develop skills or abilities further and give more about what the audience loved before. Think of Mario developing his skills beyond jumping in Super Mario Bros. to flying in Super Mario Bros. 3 and then again in Super Mario World. Sequels also provide the opportunity for a reset. Maybe the developers feel like they've boxed themselves into a corner and want to wipe that slate clean. So although there's benefits to sequels, there's also risks too. So sequels can split communities as we saw with the release of Destiny 2. Many players who played together on Xbox and PlayStation decided to upgrade to PC, leaving fractured clans and a split community across three platforms who couldn't play against each other. There's a risk as well that all the updates from the original could get missed by the team that's working on the sequel. Using Destiny as an example again, the team working on Destiny 2 and the live service team working on the updates to original Destiny got out of step. By the time the Rise of Iron expansion was rolled out, Destiny 1 was in a great place. Destiny 2's launch saw the features that had been built up over many small increments and they were removed. A sequel can also be a good opportunity for players to have a look around and see what else is out there, breaking the comfort of active and engaged audiences. So if you've got a reasonable live service model, this is not likely something you want to disrupt as a business model. This has led to some companies being very nervous about numbered sequels, with League of Legends developer Riot famously saying there would never be a League of Legends 2. As an alternative to numbered sequels, the modern way of conveying change and improvements to players is through the Seasons model. Or rather than building the game from the ground up in a new engine, with new graphics the game is incrementally improved over time, as the narrative changes for a shorter time period, so that's normally months rather than years. So live service games like Apex Legends, Destiny 2 and Fortnite have embraced this model and provide ever evolving worlds with frequently added content and seasonal updates. There's plenty of benefits to the seasonal model with smaller microtransactions leading to often healthy revenue streams. So free to the user can often mean getting the game in front of more eyes which hopefully leads to bigger audiences. And if you can create a world that players care about and they often don't mind spending a little money on cosmetics then you're onto a winner. Seasons allow companies to iterate and experiment as well, try out something new, and if people don't like it, well, it's not too long to wait before that feature or the weapon or game mode goes away with a new season. Perhaps the only downside to this model is it's more difficult to promote big step changes and that microtransactions don't really have the best reputation with consumers. So Destiny is a good example of maybe how not to approach with a numbered sequel in a live service game. Features that took years to get into shape 
a step back in the weapon system, 4v4 rather than 6v6, in Crucible and generally a slower game style all added to players leaving in droves months after Destiny 2 had been released. The number 2 in the title gave Bungie a good opportunity to reset and build upon what they developed in the first 3 years of the Destiny franchise, however the oversimplification and the stripped back version of Destiny did not resonate with its core audience and was focused on the casual player. This led to the community wilting with Trials of Osiris consistently having 145,000 players per weekend where Trials of the Nine had about 71,000 on Twitch and many of the community leaders leaving the game looking for other games to fill that void. Overwatch 2 is an interesting take on how to provide a sequel to a live service game. So Overwatch has been a very successful PvP focused game for Blizzard and they recently announced the sequel Overwatch 2 which is coming out sometime in the near future. So Blizzard is taking a hybrid approach of offering a numbered sequel and a live service game like update to keep the community together, focused and engaged whilst developing the new features around their audience. So Blizzard knows that Overwatch fans are active and engaged and they don't want to disrupt their audience's enjoyment, partly because they continue to pay for a steady stream of a profitable microtransactions. Um, but they've also learned from their former Activision Blizzard game buddies Bungie. So they've come up with an interesting idea where PvP updates are going to be delivered to Overwatch 1 free of charge, while at the same time developing Overwatch 2's replayable PvE and story modes around the successful structure of PvP. This allows Blizzard to provide enough new features to warrant the two in the title without the risk of upsetting and dividing their existing community. In summary, developers still lean into numbered sequels, but the tides are turning and changing and teams are experimenting with new models as the landscape evolves. And it'll be interesting to see the impact of Overwatch 2 as we move into 2020 and what other experiments companies try. For now, the numbered sequel still has value for both developer and audience alike, but the landscape is changing and it's an exciting time for those following the live service game models. So what do you think of numbered sequels in live service games? Head on over to patreon.com forward slash this week in video games and sign up to any tier and let me know your feedback, send in your questions, your comments, and your thoughts and sequels in live service games. I would love to hear from you. Well, that's it for now for sequels in live service games. But next up, I've got an interview with Jennifer Schneiderwright from Niam Niam, the developer of Astrologaster. And uh, I sat down and spoke to Jennifer and uh, we went into Astrologaster amongst loads of other things. So let's get to that interview. Welcome back to This Week in Video Games, and I'm here with Jennifer Snyderwright from Nyam Nyam, and uh, we're here to talk about Astrologaster, amongst uh, other things. So welcome, Jennifer. How's it going? Uh, I'm great. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me on your podcast. Well, no, no problem. It's, it's absolutely a pleasure to, to have you here. And uh, first of all, um, I want to talk about Astrologaster, and uh, it's really, really fun. I think it's one of the most fun and funny um, experiences I've had with a video game for some time. So for, for, for those who don't know about Astrologaster, could you tell us about it? Sure. Uh, so Astrologaster is a uh, comedy game in which you play as a man called Dr. Simon Foreman and uh, you live kind of like during the time of Shakespeare. And um, you have people that come to you with their problems. Uh, these problems can be personal, professional, or medical. And you're trying to help these people by doing astrology. Uh, so you're finding answers in the stars, and you need to make a judgment call of what you think 
the best answer uh, is that the stars are giving you. And the game is based on real history. Simon Forman was a real historic figure. And we know about him because he left behind one of the largest collections of uh, medical records. Uh, I think 60,000 records uh, uh, comprising of 54,000 patients that he treated using astrology. And the game is kind of like a comedy best of of this man's uh, life's work. Fifty-four thousand patients. He was a real. <laughs> he was a real busy man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He was a very. He was very popular, probably because you know this was like he lived uh, from fifteen. So from fifteen nineteen two until sixteen hundred and eleven, he had a practice in London, Lambeth. And at that time, nobody really knew anything about medicine or not, not very much. They didn't know very much about medicine. So I suppose if you had the choice to go to someone who treats by purging and bloodletting you, or you go to a guy who just reads your fate in the stars, I mean, <laughs> I know, you know, who I would choose. <laughs> so how, how did you originally find out about Simon Foreman? Uh, the University of Cambridge, uh, there's a professor by the name of Lauren Cassell. She has been studying Foreman, I think, for the last 25 years. And for the last 10 years, she and her team have created kind of like a digital archive of these patient records, of these medical records. And about four to five years ago, I met her at a workshop that was kind of like, I don't know, scientists meets game developers. And she presented her research to me and we got, we got paired kind of like as a, you know, like as a little working group for me to come up with a concept based on her research. And uh, the first concept that I came up with was uh, kind of similar to now, but was a little bit more point and click adventure gamey. And uh, I didn't actually do anything with it, but I kept coming back um, to this kind of like the story of Dr. Simon Foreman and how these patient records are these windows into kind of like people's lives. And it's like, it's just like a fragment. It's, it's really just fragments of stories, these medical records, because a lot of the time we don't know what happened to them after, you know, they came to Foreman. Like, did they follow his, his advice? Uh, was it good advice? Was it bad advice? And I just, I don't know, like, I just kept coming back to it. Uh, to to all of these stories and I, and I I think a year or two after I met Lauren I decided that I wanted to make like a game about this. Well, it's 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 really funny. It's 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 full of there's there's lots of sex in there. There's lots of Elizabethan kind of terror plots and there's there's loads of weird and wonderful diseases in the game. I was wondering what's what do you have a favorite kind of um, story strand in the game? Um, I think my favorite is uh, Ricardo Ferraro. Like he made me laugh the most. I, I love I love Ricardo <laughs> Ferraro. <laughs> he's, he's my favorite too. And he's also a real. So Ricardo Ferraro is well. I don't want to spoil the game, but let's just say he's tied into a real. He's a very important part of the real Simon's Foreman's life. Ah, okay. Without spoil, without spoil. I don't want to spoil the game, obviously. But <laughs> I love, I love Ricardo Ferraro. He's, he's, he's hilarious. And uh, 
I also, as well as the kind of comedy in the game, what's what's really um, kind of immediately apparent is the kind of pop-up kind of art style in the game. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes, so the, the pop-up book art style um, kind of like comes, it's like two things that are in it. So our first game, Tengami, was an atmospheric adventure game in a Japanese pop-up book. And you kind of like you solve puzzles by flipping and folding part of the book. And we spent a lot of time creating this technology. Uh, it's, it's like, I think it, it must be the only of its kind, you know, digital pop-up game engine that we created. And so I wanted to reuse uh, that technology for our new game, but in a different in a different way. So I didn't want to use it again for puzzle solving. And um, because obviously the game is based on Simon's Foreman's case books, I thought that it's like a nice... A nice metaphor is kind of like the pop-up book, you know, it's kind of like his case books come alive as like a playable, you know, as a playable case book. But the second idea behind it is um, because of kind of like, you know, like you need to be very careful with how you construct pop-ups and they are very similar, I find, to theater stages or like kind of like theater set design. And uh, because so like when I, you know, when I researched Astrologaster and I was talking uh, to Lauren Cassell, the uh, professor from the University of Cambridge, and we came back kind of like discussing about how medicine is also a performance. Like obviously, like we are told that like medicine is just about, you know, facts and you go to the doctor and they look at your symptoms and they can tell you what's wrong with you. But I think everyone who has been to the doctor knows that this is not how it works. Like most of the time, they also just like kind of guess, <laughs> you know, based on the symptoms and they Google just like we do. I mean, obviously, they know a little bit more than, than, than the average sick person. And I think that there's a lot of, you know, medicine is very performative, um, whether you believe what a doctor is saying you, because a lot of the time you can actually not confirm yourself, right? even with all of the Googling in the world, <laughs> whether what this doctor is telling you is the truth. So there's like a, there's this element of performance, you know, almost like a, like you're in a, in a theater play, <laughs> uh, you and the doctor on stage uh, going through uh, the, you know, this medical encounter. And so the pop-up book really, I find like, I, like I find really allowed us to bring kind of like the performative nature of medicine come alive, uh, you know, and almost make it seem like the game is set in a pop-up book theater stage. I, I really like it. And it's, it's um, as well as the, as well as the art style and the kind of, uh, I know exactly what you mean by the sense of theater. Cause when, when a character kind of knocks at the door and comes in to speak to Simon Foreman and then um, he'll listen to um uh, their their stories but then then the game goes into the kind of astrology sort of mode of the game could you tell us a little bit more about the mechanics of kind of how simon goes about diagnosing the the issues yes so there are two so it there are two types of uh let's call it uh astrology systems in the game so one is a medical system if the patient comes with a medical question and then there's one system for if they come with a, a non-medical question 
So both of these systems are based on actual uh, astrology. So in medical astrology, there's something called a zodiac man that it used for diagnosing uh, illnesses. And the zodiac man basically works that each zodiac is assigned a region of the body. So for example, Pisces is the ruler of the feet area and Aries is the ruler of the head area. And uh, if somebody comes to you um, and they tell you their symptoms, then in actual, so in actual medical astrology, like the doctor would be like, okay, so your symptoms are, um, I don't know, like you have a toe ache, so Pisces is somehow related to your illness, and uh, you have, I don't know, like um, a red forehead, so Aries has something to do with the diagnosis. And then what they do is they cast an astrological chart and they look like what kind of planets and stars are in Pisces and Aries. And so the game, you don't need to know any of that in the game. The game kind of like does a simplified version of that if it's a medical problem. And there are always uh, between one to three answers, I think, that you can choose from. And it's not in the game, it's not necessarily about um, like what is right or wrong. It's not really, it's not like a, it's not a multiple choice game, right? Where we are quizzing you on astrology knowledge. It's more about what are the stars saying and what are the potential consequences of your choices? So what is it that the client wants to hear? And then you kind of like this, like there's a lot of strategy in the game. We are trying to read your patients, kind of like personalities and motivations, but you're also trying to, I suppose, guess <laughs> what the future is going to hold because you don't want to give answers that uh, outright prove to be wrong, right? Because then the client will come back and they'll be like, what you said, you know, is is complete bollocks. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and they, you know, they're, they're going to be right, really angry with you. And uh, so in the, in the non-medical astrology, you're basically looking at a star chart as a, like, as a map of the sky above you. And uh, it's divided into 12 sections that are called houses. And this is also how actual astrology works. And these houses have topics. So for example, house one is always about the patient uh, let me see if I can remember other houses now. Uh, let's say house eight could be about, the topic could be about religion. <laughs> house six might be love and romance, but I can't remember now exactly. And so if planets or stars are in houses, then they give meaning to a house. So for example, the sun has a vocabulary that's associated with it that usually has something to do with a mature man or authority. Uh, Pluto has a vocabulary associated with it that has something to do with transformation and death. And so, for example, if you have Pluto in the house of religion, you know that there's that uh, a possible interpretation is um, there's some kind of you know transformation uh, happening uh, related to religion or, uh, or possible death. But again, you don't need to know anything. Like the game, basically, foreman, you're just investigating these houses and the planets and the possible meanings. And the game tells you what foreman thinks uh, the translation or the interpretation of the chart uh, of the stars is. And you, as the player, you just really have to make the judgment of what you think the best answer is in this current situation. Ultimately, Simon really wants to get his medical license. 
and yes. uh, <laughs> so it's a true story it's a true story <laughs> <laughs> and he's he's got to get a um he's got to get a number of referrals from his clients so it's interesting because you, you as you listen to clients coming in and um one young lady's talking about her old husband and how oh you know is there any chance he you know he, he might die soon <laughs> <laughs> i thought that was hilarious but how so how does how how do the players go about getting their medical license so you uh, so the real the real Simon Foreman as well as Simon Foreman in the game has a problem that he can't afford to go to university to get a medical degree and so in order to get a medical license, and this is how the real time informant did it, you're trying to get, I think, eight of your patients to write you uh, recommendation letters. And these letters of recommendation um, you ca can be exchanged for a medical license from the University of Cambridge. And um, you do this um, by kind of like there's a satisfaction system. So patients that have a, you know, depending on how satisfied they are with you from zero to 100%. And if you manage to get their satisfaction up to 100, uh, they write you this letter. And so uh, this is what I was trying to get at earlier a little bit. So in the game, it's not always so important that what you tell them comes true. <laughs> it's more about like kind of like reading the patient and trying to figure out, I don't know, not necessarily what makes them happy, but like, what do you think is going to increase their satisfaction with you? And it's not necessarily so simple that it's just, you know, so patients come to you between five and seven times and there are some answers that are high risk, uh, but that can have later on, let's say two or three consultations later, can have like a high payoff. Oh. And uh, so, yeah, it's kind of like you have to try I guess like the real Simon Foreman, you know, to make sense of the stars <laughs> <laughs> and see if you can chart your way to a letter of recommendation. So the so the the diagnosis that you um, give early on in the game could affect the outcome two or three visits later. Yes, they can. Oh, okay. There are some patients, uh, Thomas, I think Thomas Black and Alice Black, for example, that is like a high payoff when you give an answer that's probably, I think, slightly controversial at the time that you're giving it. And, uh, oh, that's... That, that, without that's, spoiling it, without giving people hints. <laughs> it's so hard to talk about it without <laughs> spoiling it. No, it's, um, but it, it's, it, it's, it's really funny. And, um, like I said, the, the, it's it's really um, easy to play as well. You, like you say, you don't have to have um, a lot of knowledge about astrology. The game kind of takes you through that. Um, yeah, and, and the game, you know, the game is also not supposed to be played. You must get this license. It's relatively, um, I mean, I shouldn't say this, but it's, it's actually for us, you know, for me as the game developer, it wasn't so much important that people get the license, but we just really wanted people to, regardless of which story choices they pick, right, which choices they make, to always have a good time and that it's always funny. But if you manage to actually read all of these patients correctly, you know, figure out what they want. Um, if you're playing it really strategically, you can you can play it that way. And I think that's it's quite challenging and it's also really fun. But even if you're just there to have a good time, you know, really just like to be like a sitcom, like a sitcom comedy, right? 
uh, then you can do that and you can play it without any pressure. One, one of my favorite parts of the game was the, was the music and specifically the singing. Um, and uh, every time a new character comes to the door, there's a really lovely song about that character. And um, what, what was your inspiration for, that, for, the, for the singing in the game? So um, there's, a, there's a couple of things uh, that are coming together there. So the game always, uh, so the game follows a set loop, which is a patient comes to you. And in the design, in the design, so when I, de so when I designed it, the design is so a patient comes to you and there's a little bit of an introduction who this patient is. And then the patient starts talking to the doctor. You find out what the problem is. Then the next phase is... Um, you're doing the astrological consultation where you're picking kind of like your answer for the patient. And then step four is you are delivering this answer. And step five is uh, the patient goes away. And uh, then step five is you're looking at kind of like a medical record of what just happened. And you see if the patient's immediate satisfaction went up and down. And then the next patient arrives and we loop. So it comes again to this patient introduction. And so we knew from the beginning that we always wanted to have this patient introduction phase, but we didn't immediate. But we didn't know until I would say about two years into the into the development how we would exactly do that, um, because so like one of the things like there's already like a lot of text and a lot of dialogue in the game and a lot of reading, and I didn't want to have like more dialogue or text that introduces the patient like I wanted something that you know to break to like to break it up and I like you know like give some relief and you're just you're just there for the ride for a bit right while still getting this effect that you know who just came and have a little bit of an okay this is what happened the last time that they came but also something that kind of like reveals the personality of the patient because it's quite important uh, if you if you're playing strategically to understand uh, that and so Catherine Neal uh, who wrote the game and she also wrote all of the uh, like who wrote the the story and the dialogue and she also is the lyricist for the songs we kept talking about it how we want to do it and um, in one of these conversations we kind of like uh, we said, okay, what about if we did, uh, you know, songs for each patient, and each for each verse. So each consultation has a verse, and it it gives you kind of like a mix of this is what has happened so far, and this is what a little bit of foreshadowing of what might happen, but also kind of like a commentary on that patient. You know, like a way for us to expose the patient's personality and poke a little bit of fun at them. <laughs> and uh, Catherine has a lot of experience with madrigals because I think when she was in uni, she used to kind of like profession. She was like a pro professional part-time madrigal singer at weddings. Oh wow! <laughs> and uh, so, so yeah. So that's that's kind of like how we came up with it. It's always you know like it's several things. And because Catherine had that experience, and before Catherine joined games, she also studied music. And did a little bit of songwriting, um, you know, like we like when we talked about it, and 
you know, like I immediately had the confidence that we would actually be able to pull that off because it's not, you know, it's not that easy <laughs> to have songs that are so tied into, into a game, into the gameplay as what we did with Strollagaster. I think I think they fit perfectly. Like you say, they they give a little bit of the personality and uh, give an introduction and and the recap and um, yeah, really no, really 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 good fun. I, I I always look forward to a new patient arriving so I can hear a new song. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, that 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 that's great. Um, and so how can um, players uh, get hold of the game? Uh, it's available on the App Store. Or you can get it on Steam uh, for PC and Mac, and also, you know, uh, it's on Itch, and all of these, uh, and Humble, and all of these other PC stores. Brilliant. And uh, well, yeah, I, I I had a really really fun time with it, and I, I felt like it was watching like a a few episodes of Blackadder or something like that in in video game form. I thought it was uh, yeah really really funny. Um, I'm happy that you say that because we did pitch it to people as <laughs> Black Blackadder the video game. <laughs> oh, it's no, it's it's wonderful, and um, no, I I definitely recommend um, everyone out there listening now. Um, uh, go and get hold of the game and and try it out. Um, I wanted to move um, slightly away from Astrologaster um, to your um, company, Jennifer uh, Nyam Yam. Um, so I was, I was wondering, how big is the team that you work with on on the, the games that you produce? So the company is actually just me, and uh, usually the way that I work is I come up with concepts and. Um, try to find the money to make, you know, to make these concepts and then find kind of like collaborators. And there's like various levels of collaborators, um, you know, some that are like very involved, um, you know, like like Catherine, for example, on Astrologaster, who obviously like had a huge um, impact. Um, and some who are, you know, are just are less involved. And... Um, yeah, then we come together to, until the game is finished and then we, you know, go our separate ways and then hopefully the stars align and we can all uh, come and work again together on a, on another project. And uh, so how do you go about um, in terms of raising the funds? Is it like a Kickstarter thing or do you, do you pull resources together? Yeah, it can be, can be quite uh, different, uh, quite um so, for example, on Tengami, uh, Tengami was uh, just was a very small team, and it had kind of like three co-creators that had, uh, let's say, equal um, kind of like creative impact in the game. And Tengami was self-funded uh, by these three creators. So one is me, and then the other is Phil Tossel and um, Rio Agaria. And for Astrologaster was uh, was partially self-funded uh, by Nyam Nyam. And then the remaining money, it was kind of like a 50-50. So 50% was Nyam Nyam. And then we had a grant from the Creative Europe Media Program and uh, from the Wellcome Trust. The Wellcome Trust usually does not fund video games. Uh, they are a medical science charity and uh, we get them interested in supporting Astrologaster uh, because it's obviously based on a medical history. Uh, but for the next game, I'm actually looking, I think, to talk to publishers to get it funded. 
so it's always you know different every every project is different mm. and um so how how do you go about coming up with ideas for games do you do you do um prototyping or writing or do you do you test with um, various people how how do you how do you kind of come up with an idea and then kind of uh, test out that concept yeah, I think that's like kind of like different steps for me. So like ideas, like I always have ideas of things that I want to make. Um, but usually what I do is like I try to sit with an idea for a while, sometimes years, <laughs> before I decide that I want to make it. And the reason for that is like, I don't know, like ide ideas, like I find like ideas are cheap. And if you're deciding that you're going to spend the next couple of years of your life, you know, developing an idea into a kind of like a, a full concept and a game, like you really need to think that you really, really want to make it. Yeah. And that there's also like something in there. So like at Niamni, I'm like, I describe our games as beautifully crafted, but unconventional. And so if, I think that something is unconventional or a little different. Like, I want to see that the idea survives the test of time. You know, maybe it just seems unconventional today, but mm. next month it's already, you know, oh, actually, everybody is doing this. And then the other step to it is, so I think like uh, kind of like prototyping and coming up with a more, with a bigger concept is a lot of research for me. So I usually don't start by coming up with ideas for me game mechanics. I think a lot of people are like what I hear from other developers, like people are just like looking for these really kind of like, you know, hit mechanics, mechanics mm -hmm. that make a hit game. Whereas I'm more like, like I say, like I, I look like at these, you know, this idea, like this concept, you know, okay, Simon Foreman, his case books. How do I make a game about that? And the way that I figure that out is, is by doing a lot of research into who is Simon Foreman as a person, like how did his medical practice work? And are you kind of like go into this kind of like research rabbit hole where it's like, okay, Simon Foreman used astrology. Like, like how does astrology actually work? <laughs> you know, then you start learning astrology. And by learning astrology, I can see um, like I, I can see how I can translate that into mechanics, you know, into game mechanics. Um, and I think that's really also like how Tengami worked for me. Like we did so much research into building pop-ups. I spent months and months just prototyping pop-ups, you know, with paper, like building with them with my hands so that I had a real good understanding of how the construction works, but also kind of like, like what is the feeling, like what is the feeling associated with pop-ups? Like what are the kind of like metaphors that you can apply to flipping and folding and paper, you know, rising and falling. And so, yeah, that's really what, how it works for me. And then for Astrologaster, you know, after I'd done all of this research and I was like, okay, I think I, I have a good idea of how astrology works. And um, I want to prototype how we're turning this into mechanics. Then I do prototyping. Um, and did a couple of prototypes for the astrology system. 
yeah, I think that's 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 basically my process. That's um, that, that's really good, and it really it really comes across. The I was thinking as you were talking there how how tactile the pop ups feel. The and and the the audio in Astralagaster as well is when you when you flip a page, it's really fluid and you can you, you hear the sound of the page and it's uh, it re your research and your your attention to detail in your research really comes across in your game. So, I can really appreciate that. Oh, thank you. Makes me really happy to hear. <laughs> um, and and you mentioned before collaborating with others in the industry and you you kind of come up with an idea and then maybe build a team and there's different levels of kind of uh, collaborators and uh, um how how do you go about um kind of collaborating with others in the industry how do you how, do you tap into existing um contacts or do you do you go to conferences how how do you kind of connect in your in your network Yeah, it's a it's a mix, really. I mean, I go to I go plenty of to plenty of gaming related events every year, and you always meet new people. And then I think it's don't know, like it's not real. It's it's hard to know. It's definitely about you know keep expanding your network, but also I find that I tend to work with people that I've met several times. I'm not the I'm not the type of person that's like like meets somebody one time, and it's like oh wow you know we need to work together. Yeah. For me, it's more like having a relationship with someone, and knowing that you have like a strong foundation. Because if you're working with someone like as a co-creator, like I did with Phil and Rio on Tengami, making games is really hard, and relationships can deteriorate quite quickly. And so I always find like, you know, like with people like who are very close to the creative heart of a game, if they are my collaborators, I need to know that the relationship is strong enough that we are going to be able to, you know, make it through the hard times and that we yeah. are coming out okay. And it's not going to be easy. And, you know, there's going to be like, we, we, you know, there'll be, there's always going to be a little bit of fighting, yeah. but there's also, you know, like people get depressed. Oh, are we ever going to be able to make this game? Will we ever finish? Is this going to be any good? Like you just need to be able to talk to people, you know, like genuinely, you need to be able to have like honest and hard conversations. Yeah. And if I feel like that, I found a person like that, you know, then I'll approach them and I'll be like, you know, Hey, <laughs> You're the one. <laughs> let's make let's make a game. Yeah, it's almost it's almost like marrying, as you know. Yeah. It's almost like being married to a couple of people. I like that's certainly what Tengami felt like being married to two, to two guys. <laughs> sounds uh, it sounds delightfully complicated. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, it, it isn't once you found you found these people, right? Yeah. Because you yeah. know that there's going to be these ups and downs, and you. I think it's important to know that because, you know what, honestly, like I hear this all the time, you know, people have a great idea, everybody is really excited, you know, they're coming together, they form a little studio, make a game, kind of like halfway through or towards the end, nobody's talking to each other anymore. Mm. Um, because it's just that complicated, you know, it's just it's just making games is... Um, <laughs> It's not even the technical side. It's just like you're making something creative. Everybody is really excited and passionate. Everybody wants to do their best work. Everybody wants to make the best game. But obviously, there's going to be differences of opinion. 
you know, what is that best game. Mm. So it's really important to be careful with collaborators. For sure. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's like, it, like you said earlier, ideas are cheap and um, taking those ideas through to the end. I mean, finishing, it's easy to start projects, but actually working your way through projects and finishing projects and, and working your way through those tough times. And, you know, there'll be lull moments where you have to sort of reinvigorate um, either people working on the game or the audience or, uh, yeah, no, definitely. It's, it's, it's really interesting. Um, the, you mentioned there that you often go to events, uh, mm -hmm. gaming-related events. What, what's your sort of top events that you like to go to? I love GDC, <laughs> in, uh, the one in San Francisco, uh, because it's so international. You know, people from everywhere are coming. And so I used to I used to work for a Japanese company, and when I go to GDC every year, that's where I get to kind of like catch up with my with my Japanese friends. So that's why it's my one of my favorites. But also I have so many yeah I have so many good friends in the US now. And then I think um, you know like Amaze in Germany and Berlin is really good. Uh, Rest here in the UK is a lot of fun. Adventure X. Um, which was just a couple of weeks ago at the British Library. It's really small and it's a really great event if you um, you know love narrative and adventure games. It's really it's really a lot of good events. And uh, how 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 was Adventure X for you recently? I, so I was there. I was in the audience, and it was really it was a lovely venue. And uh, and um, I, um, I I know you, you were demonstrating uh, Astrologaster out there on the on the kind of show floor part of the part of the conference. H how was the event for you? Uh, was you know was it was really great. Um, the event was a lot of fun. You know, people were super friendly. Uh, you know, they like we chatted with so many people. You know, people sitting down to play the game. It was a it's a it's a really kind of like chilled event and it's very intimate, you know, it's like very small. So at the end of day two, you probably have kind of like met everyone. And so that's, you know, it's really, it's really nice. I went to, uh, I went to Resd earlier, uh, EGX Resd earlier uh, this year and that's, that's great and everything. But like you say, this it's really big and the, the kind of the parts of the, um, or the, the, the places where you can kind of, play the games and meet people they're sort of disparate and out all over the place whereas adventure x was really nice and kind of self-contained and uh, yeah and, and so sort of and you don't end. have to shout to talk to yeah. people right so you exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no it's a it's a it's a great event it's just obviously you know there's not that many people that can go to it i actually don't know what the ticket limit is um so that's an that's a disadvantage that you need to be really fast to get your ticket yeah. if you want to go to Adventure X. Yeah, I think they sold out in was it three hours or something? Yeah, like <laughs> so it's so popular. <laughs> and um, so what's what what's next on the agenda for Nyam Yam? Is is it a top secret project or is are there any any tidbits that you could that you could give us? So I want to continue working with um, Catherine and um, we really think that there's like kind of like a lack of good comedy games or a, let's just say a lack of comedy games. And so we would love to do um, 
more comedy games together. And that's kind of like one direction that we are exploring. And then the other is actually a, an idea that's going to be quite different from anything Yam Yam has done so far, which I can't I can't say too much about it. <laughs> Just that oh, it's that's, quite different. That's good. It's yeah. It's it's going to be it's going to be quite different. That's that that's that sounds intriguing. <laughs> <laughs> um. I mean, outside of outside of gaming, um, is there anything out there in the world of kind of media, be it kind of music or movies or radio or anything that inspires you and that you like to sort of take into your work? Mm, yeah, I really actually I really like podcasts. <laughs> and, uh, I've been uh, thinking a lot. You know, everybody in games is like, oh, cinema is the greatest storytelling frontier. Let's make more cinematic games. But I'm more like, okay, you know, we've done with Astralagaster. We have like tried to use theater for storytelling. What if you had a game and you looked at kind of like podcasts, but also radio stories, you know, audiobook storytelling, like what are kind of like the narrative techniques? Like how could you translate that into a video game? I've I've got a good recommendation for you mm. if you're interested. Um, there's um, something on um, BBC Sounds called um, the Case of Charles Dexter Ward, okay, uh, which is a is a ten part podcast and uh, yeah, really really interesting. I'll leave it at that. I think that's you know like it's, I know it's, with the with this true crime wave uh, in podcasts. I think like that we see like a lot of excellent storytelling and true crime but also really bad storytelling and uh, you know I find stuff like that always like really like I love true crime and I find it really fascinating like to analyze why is this one podcast really amazing like like what do they do that makes it so gripping whereas another podcast that's about a different true crime case where if you just look at the pure facts of the cases you know they are both really intriguing and exciting but why is it that one really grabs you and you're just waiting for the next episode and with the other you're a little bit like oh and they you know like i'm not so sure about where this is going <laughs> so yeah so pod- podcasts well that's that, that, that's, that sounds that sounds really good i uh well, I look, I look forward to your kind of true, car, uh, true crime podcast-inspired game. <laughs> oh, it's, a, it's a, one of the ideas that I benched, but maybe who knows? <laughs> maybe in ten years. But I'm sure we'll, use, but I'm sure we'll use the storytelling techniques for something else. Well, Jennifer, um, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I've taken up a, enough of your time. Uh, it's been great to talk about Astrologaster, um, your company and your experience in the video games industry. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Um, yeah, it's been wonderful to wonderful to have you on the podcast. Yeah, thanks. It was a lot of fun talking to you and I'm going to check out that podcast. Well, that was me there talking to Jennifer Schneider right from Niam Niam, uh, talking about Astrologaster and all different types of things. And thank you so much to Jennifer for taking the time out and sitting down with me talking about all things video games. Really, really appreciate your time. And uh, next up, let's get into the Astrologaster review. Mr. Foreman, you have been called before this assembly of the College of Physicians to answer the charge of practicing medicine without a medical license. 
What have you to say in your defense? Uh, well... In 1592, I saved the lives of countless Londoners, curing them of the plague using the very latest innovations in medical astrology. Since then, patients have come to me seeking treatment for their medical problems. To advise them, I find answers in the stars. I have many patients from all walks of life. And I think you will find, sir, that they are most satisfied with the quality of medical care I provide. It is only a matter of time before I gain my medical license. For I am not a quack, sir. I am a true doctor. <laughs> Silence. Constable, shackle this man and take him from hence to jail. Uh, but, sir, uh, pray afford me the chance to... Uh, unhand me, you rogue. Remember the good old days when doctors used stars and instinct to diagnose the locals? None of this evidence-based rubbish. So Astrologaster is a hilarious point-and-click adventure game in Elizabethan England bursting with fun. So in Astrologaster, you're Simon Foreman or Dr. Foreman to some. So that moniker of doctor should definitely be questioned as you haven't yet got your medical license. So what do you do if you don't have a medical license? Well, you use the stars and you guess, of course. Simon is an astrological doctor in the 1590s and had some success with cleaning up the plague in London and now he's the talk of the town when it comes to a tummy bug or a headache. So your reputation precedes you and the local upper class community know your name. They come along telling you of their illness and misfortune. So more often than not there's a little gossip thrown into conversation and a diagnosis. Who's sleeping with who and what uh, Shakespeare's up to? So Astrologaster reminds me of an episode of Blackadder. It's funny, saucy, witty, and certainly very clever. That was a wildly successful formula on TV, and that British charm has been translated very well to this game. So the folk of the town, they come along to your office and they tell you a little bit about what's wrong with them. And then a zodiac chart appears with a few diagnoses to choose from. There's plenty of humour and clever jokes about the time period, and it's not a chore to read through the game, which essentially is an interactive story that you work your way through. The characters are lovable, funny, and you want to spend your time with them. So the objective of the game is to make your clients happy, and you want to get that medical licence that you've always wanted. So patients have this happiness meter, and that fills up when they like your diagnosis or not. So once you've successfully impressed someone enough, they'll give you a nice letter of recommendation and you'll need to collect eight of these to take to the College of Physicians to get that elusive medical license. The voice acting in the game is absolutely top notch and the singing is next level. As well as being funny and entertaining, the songs are full of Tudor related info and they're teaching me a little bit about the time period as the game is based on real characters. It's almost like a mini musical made just for you. Not everyone who comes to see you is actually even ill. Sometimes they'll just want to share, talk and gossip. More often than not, they'll start up talking about their ailment, but then the conversation will shift to the good stuff. The patients that come in, they have questionable morals, objectives and are most certainly liars. That's not to say that Dr. Foreman is morally above the situation, oh no. He's just as able to tell a lie as the next person. All in all, the characters, they're fun and they're brought to life through great voice acting and song. As well as the good humour and entertainment, there's good history here too. The game throws in little nuggets of Elizabethan history at you in terms of battles and coup attempts. You've got Simon Foreman, he's a real character, and once you're done with the game you should definitely look him up. And it all makes for a really engrossing tale. 
I really enjoyed the humour in Astrologaster and having spent many hours watching Blackadder and playing adventure games, uh, this combination really, really appealed to me and it, I wasn't let down at all. The premise of a doctor using star charts to diagnose his unaware patients and making your way towards a medical license is a fun experience. It's not too long either, so you could probably play it through in a few game sessions. Always entertaining, with patients revealing layers of detail about their husbands, wives and their neighbours. So this was developed by Niam Niam, was originally released on the 9th of May 2019. So yeah, you should definitely go out there and get Astrologaster, really, really super fun. Had me laughing all the way through, and I gave it a final score of 78 out of 100. But what did you think about Astrologaster? Head on over to patreon.com forward slash This Week in Video Games and uh, leave me a comment on my Astrologaster post, and uh, I'd love to hear what you thought. Well, that's it for Astrologaster, and next up, it's Bubble Bubble for Friends. Bub and Bob, the cute bubble blind dragons, are back in this brand new adventure in Bubble Bubble 4 Friends on Nintendo Switch. So Bubble Bubble 4 Friends is a reimagining of the classic Bubble Bubble franchise from Taito. So you play as Bub and Bob, the two dragons have to solve puzzles, use their bubble blind skills to defeat enemies and collect all the treats that defeated enemies have left behind. So work your way through a series of levels in this bright, vibrant update to the series. The controls are familiar. You can either jump or blow bubbles. You trap your enemies in the bubbles and then burst them with your dragon spikes to kill them. You can trap enemies in your bubbles and try and catch multiple enemies at once to chain together attacks and to get the most amount of points possible. Once you've cleared the screen of all the enemies, they'll drop fruit and it's your job to pick them up for even more points. Don't get hit by your enemies, otherwise they're gonna kill you. As well as using your bubbles to trap enemies, you can also use them to travel around the stages blow a bubble in front of you and then bounce on it to reach those places you couldn't reach before or use the wind currents to travel in all different directions. The updates to the series include frantic boss battles which are good set pieces in the game. So you work your way through a number of levels and then take on the big boss, all of which have different mechanics and numerous ways to beat you. The boss battles they're fun and figure out the mechanics but they're not too hard so you won't get too frustrated. Once you've beaten the boss, you can pick up the loot and extend the abilities and the skills of Bub and Bob. So use these skills to shoot modified bubbles for extended reach or special abilities like Thunder, Bomb and Longshot Bubbles. Both the boss and the item update add a layer of depth to Bubble Bubble 4 friends which we've not seen before in this franchise. There's a single player mode as well where you work your way through 100 stages and 5 bosses. The story set in a kid's bedroom, almost like Toy Story. There's also a co-op mode for players, allowing you and up to three friends to take on enemies together. Also included is the original Bubble Bubble arcade game, which was a huge hit in 1986. It's here to play if you want to go into the full Bubble Bubble nostalgia mode. I remember playing the original game on the NES back in the day, and it was great to find that the original had been thrown into the mix for players here. So Bubble Bubble has appeared on over 20 platforms over the years, from Sega Saturn to Xbox 360, and now a new generation of fans can enjoy Bubble Bubble. The graphics, they're bright and they're colourful, and the audio is really fun too, bringing up the intensity for boss battles. It's nice to see some throwbacks uh, to the 8-bit Bubble Bubble with some of the background level design as well. 
As a fan of the Bubble Bubble series, I was looking forward to this release and I enjoyed the puzzle solving elements. Chaining together attacks and killing multiple enemies at once, as well as the new and improved boss battles. I like the fact that bosses dropped items you can use to upgrade skills that were based on the boss skills and it reminded me of something like Monster Hunter or Destiny where you take down a boss and then have specific loot for that occasion. It's not quite as in-depth as those games, but it's a neat nod to where the industry is now uh, without making the mechanics too complex for the Bubble Bobble audience. I would have liked it if the gameplay was a little bit faster uh, but the controls were nice and responsive. Overall, I had a really fun time playing Bubble Bubble 4 Friends and it's a beloved franchise in the industry and it's great to see Taito back with Bub and Bob for an updated adventure on Nintendo Switch. It would be a great game to play through with your kids or pick up and play on a commute in short bursts on a train, on a bus or a plane. And we're lucky here too in Europe as we're getting it on November the 19th, 2019 which is a few weeks before the North American release of Q1 2020. If you enjoy the Bubble Bobble series then this is definitely for you, but it could also help you introduce a new generation to the world of Bubble Blowing Dragons. It's absolutely great fun. So the developer was Tato, it's uh, released on Nintendo Switch and it originally released on November the 19th 2019 in the EU and it's coming to North America in Q1 2020 and I gave the game a final score of 76 out of 100. But what did you think of Bubble Bubble 4 Friends? Head on over to patreon.com forward slash thisweekinvideogames and sign up there and send me in your questions, your feedback, your comments and your thoughts on Bubble Bubble 4 Friends. I would love to hear what you thought. Well that's it for Bubble Bubble 4 Friends and now let's get into the all platform charts. So in the all platform charts this week at number 10 we've got Mario and Sonic at the Olympic Games Tokyo 2020 that's down two places from last week's number 8. Number 9 this week it's Mario Kart 8 Deluxe which is uh, down three places from last week's number 6. Number 8 this week it's Death Stranding that's down six places from number 2. And number 7 this week it's Pokemon Sword and Shield the Jewel Edition and that's a new entry. And number 6 this week it's Luigi's Mansion 3 that's down two places from number 4. And number five this week it's FIFA 20, that's down two places from number three. Number four this week is Call of Duty Modern Warfare, and that's down from last week's number one. And number three this week it's Pokemon Shield, and that's the second Pokemon entry uh, in the charts this week. And number two this week it's Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order, definitely looking forward to jumping into that one. That's another new entry. And number one this week it's Pokemon Sword. So we got three entries for Pokemon Sword and Shield there in at uh, number seven with Pokemon Sword and Shield Dual Edition, number three Pokemon Shield and number one Pokemon Sword. So it looks like it's been a resounding success and uh, congratulations to Nintendo and uh, those at Game Freak on the, uh, on the number one this week. So congratulations. Well that's it for the charts this week. Let's have a look at what we've got coming up in the next few weeks. So we've had a lot of releases in the last few weeks, but coming up in the next few weeks, we've got a few more. So on December 3rd, we've got Arise, a simple story. Uh, that's coming out on PlayStation 4, Xbox One, and PC. We've got Halo Reach, that's coming out on Xbox One. That's on December the 3rd. Uh, we've got Life is Strange 2, Episode 5. That's coming out on PlayStation 4, Xbox One, and PC 2. We've got Neverwinter Nights Enhanced Edition. That's coming out on PS4, Xbox One, and Nintendo Switch. We got Saga Scarlet Grace that's coming out on PlayStation 4, Nintendo Switch, PC and iOS and Android as well. And we got Terminator Resistance that's coming out on PlayStation 4, Xbox One and PC. 
On the 5th of December, we've got Darksiders Genesis that's coming out on Stadia and uh, PC as well. And we've got Star Ocean First Departure R that's coming out on PlayStation 4 and Nintendo Switch. On December the 6th, we've got Assassin's Creed The Rebel Collection that's coming out on Nintendo Switch. Finally, on December the 9th, we've got Ashen that's coming out on PlayStation 4 and Nintendo Switch. Well, that's it for this week's episode. And if you want to get involved in the show, Get in contact through patreon.com forward slash This Week in Video Games or check out the latest on the website. Send in your questions, your comments, your video game stories. I'm always interested in hearing from you. I'm also available on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube and Instagram to so search This Week in Video Games on your favourite platform and join in that conversation. So thank you once again for hanging out with me and chatting about video games. I hope you had a good week. I'll talk to you in a few weeks' time. But for now, I'll see you soon.